All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Rob Laka. And Rob, um, I guess I have met him indirectly. So we have an employee at Pericles, which is our equity for services company, um, named Christina Goldstein. And Christina, a couple of years ago, just started emailing me. This is now asking for trouble by saying this publicly. Um, kind of every month to just say, I really, really want to work for you guys. But she, what she did, which turned out was Rob's advice, was every month she came was like, here's an idea for you guys. Here's a tech idea. Here's a strategy consulting idea, whatever it is, mobile voting. And she was so persistent and creative that when the point came where we needed someone that had her skill set, we hired her, right? So I guess I've indirectly been hearing from you for a while, even though it's <laughs> the first time we've actually met. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Uh, yeah, thanks for doing it. So, so you wear a bunch of different hats. So you're a professor, business professor at Tulane uh, Business School, which is the Freeman School of Business, right? That's right, Freeman. Um, and then you sit on different venture boards. You have a book coming out uh, about venture. You've worked in politics. So you have a pretty kind of broad perspective on this whole thing. So I kind of want to cover a, a lot of it. So the, the first is, um, let's talk about your book. What What's the Venture Alchemist and what's it about and why, why'd you write it? Yeah, so the Venture Alchemist is a book about how Silicon Valley turned um, silicon into gold mm -hmm. and then gold into power. Yeah. And I think when we think about venture capital, often we think about the first part. We thought about, hey, how did they scale? How did they take silicon and turn it into something that's just an incredible business model? Yeah. I mean, the volume and the way venture can back it and the way that it can go on hypergrowth. The way they can give it away, essentially, quote unquote, for free, but then they're gaining all of the value from the data that people don't share in. Right. And so when you think about that entire last two decades, incredible wealth creation by very few people, mm -hmm. and that's really phenomenal for them, not so great for all of us, necessarily. And then they, they didn't stop there. And I think that's what the, is the most interesting part of the story, is that they gain so much value economically, and then they reinvest that back into what? into more power, into power at the state level, power at the and D.C. So, level. So when you say power, because, look, I live in a world where my fund tries to connect regulation and politics with tech, mm -hmm. but what I find is most VCs and most founders are pretty ignorant about all of this stuff, which is good because it creates the need for us. <laughs> so assuming that they weren't working with us in some way, how have you seen them convert kind of their tech success into power? Yeah, I mean, you see it especially in more recent years. And so you see it, for, for instance, with Peter Thiel when he backs out on yep. Trump after the Access Hollywood tape came out. Yep. That's a key moment, yep. right? He makes this contrarian bet. He's mocked by everybody. Jeff Bezos, even, who had not said that much because he owns the Washington Post, even said, most the thing about most contrarians is that contrarians are wrong. And then Thiel was right. I mean, you even see in that moment Reed Hastings, yep. who, again, is on the board of Facebook with him, sends a letter to Thiel saying that, hey, uh, you know, this is bad governance essentially. They're on the governance committee together, and he's like, this is bad governance. This is not just different judgment. This is bad judgment. And then what happens? Well, Teal proves, it proves right because he wins that contrarian bet. Yeah. And then a lot of his acolytes end up in government. And so you see yeah. a big and, shift And there. two Senate candidates. Absolutely, right with now. With one that won his nomination. This is exactly yeah, right. look, if the Senate ends up, let's say, staying somehow at 50-50, and if Peter controls one or two senators... He's arguably the most powerful person in Washington, right? Assuming that those senators will play ball with whatever he says, and Peter has the sort of stomach to negotiate with McConnell, um, but he could, they could basically be his own Joe Manchin. 
And it's not just Peter Thiel is a yeah. thing. I mean, this is broad-based. You look at the amount of money that was spent on Prop 22 in California. $220 million on the pro side. It's still like the, they got wildly outspent the negative side, but they spent like $30 million. That's right. It was a lot of money. That's right. A lot it. of money. Yeah. That's right. In a normal campaign, a normal that year. That would be a huge spend. That's right. Yeah. And they were doing it in really novel ways, really smart ways. Yeah. Right? Prop 22 for the listeners was um, a ballot referendum in California that overturned a law that was passed in Sacramento that said everyone in the sharing economy is automatically a full-time worker as opposed to an independent contractor. Um, huge deal for gig economy companies. And Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and some others spent $220 million collectively to run this referendum to overturn AB5. They won. And not only did they win, it created a chilling effect on that legislation in other states. So you really haven't seen the other side progress nearly as fast as they were before. That's right. And that story's not over with because it was ruled unconstitutional. So we'll see where it goes. I can't right? possibly see how that ruling holds up. I know. Right? Uh, it seems, you know, I'm not, I'm the most dangerous kind of lawyer because I have a lot of grief I've never actually practiced. But it seems to me that it's it's probably unconstitutional. So how about, so let's just use Facebook as the example here. So Facebook, on one hand, often seems politically tone deaf, right? They say and do things that get them in trouble all the time. And they've even managed to do something kind of remarkable. So they've united the Republicans and Democrats against them, right. right? And yet, despite all of that, and despite everyone's animosity towards them, it's 2022, Facebook's around for, what, 15 years now? That's There's right. still no regulation. There you go. There's still no regulation. There's no privacy regulation. Yep. Section 230 is still alive That's and right. well. There's no antitrust legislation. So you're right. I mean, they're certainly turning it into, even if it's power, just to stop regulation and change. Yeah. Um, you're seeing that. What do you think that the worm turned where all of a sudden, and I have my own uh, view of this too, when all of a sudden at least big tech was like, oh, we have to take this stuff seriously. What was that moment in your mind? Well, let's go all the way back okay. actually. So in the book, I go all the way to the origin stories of these companies. And so Facebook, it was a Halloween prank originally. Right? So right. October of 2003, Zuckerberg literally is coding face mash as a Halloween prank. On the 28th, he codes it. The 31st, he debuts it. And it goes like wildfire, where literally they're comparing pictures of girls against girls that he stole. He, it was a cyber attack. He stole pictures from Harvard servers right. and then posted you know, those deer in headlight photos yeah. that like no one wants to be published. That's what we're being compared. And I think that that's interesting when you think back on it, because there's, there's, a, there's a moment there. He's literally stealing something. He's putting up pictures of mostly women, and they're mostly underage. They're freshmen. Yeah. I mean, without their consent, right? And then he says, he blogs about it. He brags about it, right? And he, in his blog, which is called Face Mash, Mash the Process, he says, uh, you know, I wonder whether I should be comparing these pictures of girls to girls or girls to barnyard animals. And so there's a, there's, there's a childishness, a, a juvenility, but also, like, there's something that happens when he then quits Harvard, okay? Which is, I mean, I, I, in the book, I jokingly say that, like, if everything that happens seems sophomoric, well, it's no, no matter. He, he quit when he was a sophomore. Like, everybody who became his mentors were then people who only cared about hyper-growth of this company. They didn't care about necessarily the full-on, like, wholesome, thoughtful, ethical, any of the purpose-driven stuff that should matter when you're building a platform that affects more people than a nation yeah. state. Yeah, although in fairness to them, so right now there's, what, 2 billion users of Facebook, right. although it's declining a little bit, but... Um, 
they had no idea, right? So like Facebook, right, the, the lack of an ethical and moral framework for Facebook is incredibly problematic, and I would argue more problematic on Instagram yeah. um, as the father of, of a teenage girl. Um, but at least in, in fairness to Teal or, you know, all of the other people that, you know, kind of advised Zuckerberg at the very beginning, I, there's no way they could have known this. And that would be what you would say if you just read chapter one of my book. Yeah. When you get to chapter six, it's sort of a three-act play, okay? So the second act actually covers people who did see it coming. And so there's this amazing story of this company called Catch-27. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? Nope. Nobody's ever heard of this because everyone's forgotten about it. But it's an amazing story. Catch-27 was a website that was created in the summer of 2004. So Zuckerberg buys the Facebook.com on January 11th of January of 2004, after the Halloween prank. He gets Teal's investment that summer, $500,000 for 7% of the company. Okay? That exact same summer, a woman named E. Jean Carroll, who's a writer for Saturday Night Live, buys Catch-27, and then she launches the site by November. Catch-27 is mentioned in the Wall Street Journal before Facebook is. What it, is it? It was covered. Same concept? It's better in some ways. Catch-27, you had, uh, it was only open for people who were 18 to 27 years old because it was like a Catch-22, but a few degrees higher yep. is the thought. And because your life as you know it is over by the time you're 27. Of course. Right? Yeah, what's the point beyond that? There you yeah. go. So you literally, you look at people who have died at 27 and they go through Janis Joplin, right. Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain. never trust over the age of 30. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. They even had this joke on their website that Usher died at 20, or uh, Usher was 27 at the time and he's probably going to die this year. <laughs> like, it's, it's just too good to be true. Is right? he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Good for him. Yeah, Survived 27. But so this website, though, actually had a business model before Facebook did because what they were doing was selling packs of digital cards 99 cents for three and you would try and get up to 27 they were making lots of money early on because people were buying these cards and they your your value would be not only on terms of these cards you were buying which were fake people but also these trading cards but also yourself so the more that someone checked your page was trading to have you, you as a friend an entity that's it right and by the way Arguably one of the first versions of, of NFTs. That's precisely right. right? Pre-blockchain, but still conceptually. Right. That's right. Yeah, like we're an investor in a company called Dibs, which is fractionalized trading of, of sports cards, right? Not that different than what you're... Okay, so It's why, 2004, Bradley. This why is, isn't CAC 27 now meta? Uh, it's exactly a great question, right? So th this entire idea gets out there and it starts to take off, right? The other thing, I've just got to add this too, because the NFT thing is amazing, and you're right, but the other thing is they were given 27%, they were giving 27% of their profits to charity. Wow. And so when you think about all the B Corps that come out later, yeah. Tom Shoes, buy one, give were one. Were they a B Corp? No, they were just doing it. They were it. just doing it. Just doing it. Without even the tax benefits of but it. That's right. God, God, God bless them. Isn't that crazy, though? They were just doing it literally as a, on the website they declare, the one thing about us is that we are evil. Trust us. <laughs> They declare this on the website. Who and, are the people? And so it's E. Jean Carroll. It's a woman named Lindsay Johnson who graduated from Stanford who was fielding all of these requests. And then it was another woman who had coded the site. And what's amazing about it is that Johnson plays this joke completely straight. Every time a journalist asks her about it, she says, like, for instance, they ask her, well, how do you determine the value of, of whether someone is worth more than the other? And she goes... It's subjective, objective, and everything in between. Right. She literally just plays it straight as like, 
I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, whatever I want it to be. <laughs> That's exactly right, which is what Facebook is doing with their algorithms at the same time. Right. And so to your question, why, why are they not meta today? Well, uh, at the time, I think a lot of people thought that Catch-27 had a better business model. And if you look at the way that students responded to Facebook, they couldn't tell if Facebook was the joke or if Catch-27 was the joke. Okay? They couldn't tell whether Catch-27 was a great social commentary, which is what Sarah Mishkin, who's at Yale at that point, writes in the Yale Daily News, or if Facebook, with think about the features, the poke feature, like right. that's a little creepy, did, right? Did, did the Catch-27 people and Zuckerberg know in the beginning that the users were the product? I think that, so Facebook in April of 2004 was the first evidence of them getting an email saying, we want to advertise on your site. So I think that they knew that our eyeballs would be, and our time would be valuable. Um, Sean Parker has also said that they basically create a social validation feedback loop and that they hacked the human brain on purpose. Like that's what he admitted in an interview with Axios at one point. So I think that they knew that there was real value in getting our attention and our time. I don't think they knew quite how valuable that would be, plus right. our data would be Do as well. you think they understood, like, Dopamine is, is part of the human brain. It's existed since humans existed. And, you know, the entire, you're a physical professor, the entire capitalistic system is built on, you know, you buy something and you get a dopamine hit from it. It makes mm -hmm. you feel good and there you want to buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the social media people invented this notion of, of leveraging dopamine to help their business. But nonetheless, it operates at like hyperscale. Do you, do you think they understood that back then? So I would argue that Maybe Zuckerberg did not. I, I know that Teal um, and I know that uh, uh, all the other investors, the early investors, did because they saw the growth, right? They, they knew the attention. Zuckerberg actually wanted to launch something called Wirehog. Which okay? is what? Wirehog was basically Dropbox. And so in the meeting where, where he's, he's discussing with Teal whether Teal's going to invest or not, uh, Parker said, he's the one who's doing the pitch, and Zuckerberg says, but if you don't like this, the Facebook thing, you might be interested in Wirehog. It's basically Dropbox. Now, if you look at the uh, market cap of Dropbox or any of its competitors yeah. versus Facebook, Facebook was the better company by far, right. economically. Right. At least. Dropbox is a good company, it's but great it's, company, it's not but Facebook. That's right. Um, how do you think they're, where do you think it goes, right? So, on one hand, they're en enormously powerful, enormously wealthy. Um, on the other hand, they're widely disliked, and at least the core product feels like it's, you know, declining and no one under the age of like 50 would ever want to touch it, right? Um, do you think the pivot into the metaverse works for him or do you think this was his one big idea and then when the sort of his products, WhatsApp or Facebook or Instagram are no longer cool, they're just not what they are today? Well, look, I mean, even if this was his one big idea, in the last two decades, he became a centibillionaire. Yeah. Right. And he continues, even though he has... 18% economic interest in meta platforms incorporated, he has 56% of the voting shares right now. Right. And so when you think about those facts, I think that as an entrepreneur, um, this man is a genius, and that's by far anyone. I think he has connected the world in a way that's really powerful. And that's one of the things I make sure I emphasize in the book is that a lot of this is good. It's good right. for us to be connected. It's good for us to learn about but there are real problems with it that continue to go unaddressed, and that's what my concern is. So, so give me both an example of something that is maybe considered by the media to be bad, but you think is good. Okay. And then give me a problem or two that you think really have to be addressed or not being addressed right now. Okay, great. I'll go for the latter. Um, every 36 seconds, there's a picture of an underage girl that's uploaded to Facebook. Every 36 seconds. 
And I think that over 20 million photos are uploaded every year. And I think that if they knew that was going to be a problem way earlier, then they would have addressed it way earlier, and it wouldn't be to that pro that scale of the problem right and now. And even the problems now, they don't know how to solve it, or I would argue they might know how to solve it, but it's not in their economic interest to solve it. Yeah, well, I think that it's their moral duty and also their business duty because it's a big risk to their business. I mean, the other stat that I would put out there is that 65% of all child sex trafficking happens on Facebook's platforms. Oh. Yeah. And so, look, I, the, we are big advocates on this podcast for repealing Section 230, and one of the reasons why is it seems to me, rather than the government trying to figure out how to moderate the content, just let the plaintiffs bar loose. They're really good at what they do. By the time they're done suing Facebook for a thousand different things, enough jurisprudence will emerge that A, people will know how to, how to move forward, and B, when all of a sudden Facebook risks losing money for not moderating properly, they'll get it better. Mm -hmm. Um, so the flip of your question. Yeah. 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 I mean, Bradley, this is a tough one because I feel like um, it depends on who you listen to in the media. Um, but I would say the thing that does bother me is that Facebook, Twitter, all these sites literally removed a sitting president of the United States from having an ability to use their platforms. And look, if that was going to be their stance, then I think that they need to be way clearer early on on what is permissible and what's not. Yeah. They, they, they allowed so much to happen throughout the Trump presidency. And then after January 6th, they decided that that was too much. But they well, literally said on their own platforms that they were the ones that were also responsible for making sure that those, you know, for people organizing, for people to create that content. But, but isn't there a, a simpler explanation, which is just all that these companies care about is making money. They, they kind of embrace the Milton Friedman definition of a corporation. Right. And as a result, Trump was fantastic for their business That's right. until it got to a point where his liability was so great because he tried to organize a coup against the country That's right. that they had no choice all of a sudden, but that became the prudent business decision. But that every decision they make is purely about maximizing revenue and nothing else. Right. And here's the ironic part. Peter Thiel is in charge of governance that entire time. Right. So after Hastings steps down from being chair of governance, he is in charge of government when they are deciding to basically do the task forces to watch the elections take those task forces apart mm -hmm. after the elections when Stop the Steel groups are growing. He's in charge of governments when <laughs> Stop the Steel groups are then also shut down, right, which is anti-free speech. And then also he's in charge of governments when they deplatform, even when they say we will let you back on in two years, he's still in charge of governments until just literally, you know, several weeks before ago. Like that was, he just stepped down, right? It was not long ago. The, when they don't even tell exactly what it means that he's no longer a quote-unquote threat. I just think that these companies don't actually have proactive, thoughtful, like really good proactive policies. Instead, they're reacting on everything. Right, because there's no regulation. Or Look, in Europe, where you have GDPR and you have the Competitive Digital Markets Act that passed and everything else, they're, they're forced to be more proactive around this stuff because the regulation requires it. In the U.S., like, who was I talking to? It was like yesterday we were talking with some company and some of my team said, well, aren't you worried about the potential regulatory risk here? And I said, Facebook's been around for almost 20 years. And they still haven't regulated social media. Mm -hmm. We still don't have rules on autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. Like whatever this thing, Web3 thing or whatever I was looking at that I can't, can't remember what it was, was, I was like, they got plenty of time, trust me. Right, right. And back to your point about Milton Friedman, I do think that that's the reason. I mean, these people bought into the greed is good mentality that was 
literally like encoded in America's operating system in the 1970s. But it's never, it's not always been that way, right? I mean, Harvard Business School was founded on the principle of educating leaders to make decent profits decently. That was literally their purpose from the get-go. But not, if you look at them, their graduates, it wouldn't seem like they've lived, they've lived much more by the University of Chicago approach. Now look, I'm a little biased because like when I was in law school there, they just teach you law and economics all day long. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of biased in its, its favor. But look, you're a business school professor. Mm -hmm. um, how much does the school, and I guess I can answer this question too, how much does the school sort of stress to you the importance of producing kind of ethical leaders who are concerned for society as opposed to people who will get really great jobs at Goldman Sachs or a hedge fund or a tech firm or whatever it is. Um, and how much are the students today truly concerned with that and when it could cost them money, right? Everyone can be a hero sitting in the classroom when it's free to be self-righteous and complain. When you see them then on the job market um, and, they all, and Facebook offers them a job, I assume a lot of them say yes, even though they've been complaining about Facebook for the last two years in class. Yeah. I, I begin every class with uh, helping my students to understand who they are as leaders and who they are as people. And so, what, so what does that look like? They come in day one. Uh, hey, to my students who are listening to this, you're about to do this. You walk in on day one for a two-semester class your senior year, and you write down your values. And then I say to them, okay, now which word isn't quite the right word? And they change that word. And I say, okay, based upon that list, which of these words is on there because your mom or your dad or, you know, your, your partner or your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, is telling you that that's what you need to be. It's not who you really are, right? And then I have them write down those values. And then instead of pairing up on teams to say, hey, we care about solving this particular problem or even we want to make the most money because we think we'd be good business partners, they share their values and they try and find where they're aligned and then that's their purpose. And is, is there, look, so overall... There's a kind of emerging consensus that happiness is probably more impacted by relationships and fulfillment um, than it really is buying stuff, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But it seems like the people who are most susceptible to kind of the hedonic treadmill mm -hmm. are business school students, right? So how do you convince them that, hey, you may go make a lot of money, but even if you do, you should be using it primarily to do good things in the world as opposed to having, you know, the goal of a super yacht? Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing, right, is that... I, the most successful student I've had, which is in the class that Christina was in when she was at Tulane, in 11 months, he just had an eight-figure exit. 11 months. He turned it around. What was the company? It's called Fanfix, F-A-N-F-I-X. Uh -huh. And Harry, I mean, he's a tremendous entrepreneur. This is a special student, right? But he came in the class, and it's the exact same ethos, right, of what's your purpose. And he basically was talking about a lot of what we talk about in the Web3 world, about ensuring that people share in the value of the data and the content they create. But he wanted to do it without having to rely on Web3, <laughs> waiting for the technology to catch right. up. And so Fanfix is basically, it's a lot like what Cameo is a one-to-one -one model, mm -hmm. right? This is a one-to-many model. And so the best example was that there was a gal who's an influencer, and she goes on Instagram. She goes, hey, I just broke up with my boyfriend. I'm about to open a bottle of wine. I'm going to tell everybody about it over on Fanfix. And so everybody switched over, yeah. subscribed. I mean, this company... <laughs> they, they put this out in the spring. At one point, they were every month having more subscribers than CNN Plus had overall. Okay, this company went wildfire, and they just got bought. And uh, why did he choose to sell after 11 months as opposed to sort of saying, I'm going to build this thing and take it public myself? Um, he's a very smart entrepreneur uh, who knew that he—I mean, look, you look at the broader macro trends, like— 
<laughs> he's got he got a really good value, I think, for what he was able to sell after eleven months. Yeah. Um, he's continuing to work with that company to continue to grow it, and I right. think that he's going to gain value through that. But here's the other thing too, right? Is that uh, if you if you believe in the idea of a super founder, that the best entrepreneurs are those that sell a company for ten million dollars or more, right? They're the ones that are going to be the winners. That's what the the guy from DCVC always talks about. This right that that is that is the only thing you can look at and say that's promising for a future you know a better business in the future is that they've already sold a company for ten million or more. Harry just did that. So Harry made eight figures of a steal because it was all in eleven months. He probably had significant ownership of the company uh, upon the sale because there wasn't that much dilution yet. What's he doing with the money? Is he doing it? Did, did the values that you had him write down on day one get reflected in how he's actually now spending that money? I mean, I, I hope so. You know, I mean, he's, he's a really good guy. Um, I think that he's still very hungry and is going to continue to build new things. I think he's just getting started. Right. I mean, what I would look at, though, is that the values, I, I don't remember exactly, but I do think the values he was writing down were about transparency, accountability, all of the things that, frankly, these big tech companies that have most of our data do right. not oblige by. Don't do. Yeah, right. that's right. So you're not like a career business school person in the sense that you worked in, in government, you're on venture boards, you have a lot of different perspectives on it. Um, does anyone need to go to business school? Ooh, great question. Um, that is a individual answer that I would okay. give different advice to every student. I was actually, I, I was... I was walking around right near here. We went to Two Boots uh, for pizza yeah, and walked pizza. around the village. Which and, one did you get? Uh, oh, I, I, I love the um, the shrimp one, whatever that is. The uh, I haven't used one, but the Mr. Pink was my go-to. <laughs> so it was one of my favorites, uh, you know, for years at Yale, even before I'd moved to to Louisiana. I'm not from Louisiana. I'm from Virginia originally. But my best friend went to NYU, so we were always there. And I just fell in love with, with Two Boots pizza. And so... Um, it was cool. I was meeting this Yale kid who's who's really smart, really bright. And, um, you know, we were talking about D.C. And, and working and living in D.C., and he was pretty disillusioned. And I was telling him, well, it's because you were there during COVID where you didn't get to enjoy any of the stuff that right. D.C. is all about, right? Um, but I was talking to him about options, business school, you know, law school, whatever else. And, and ultimately, I think for every student who's making that decision, it depends on what your education has been and what you're going to do with it, right? right? So for students who are just going to get the credential, yeah. sorry, bad decision. It's a very expensive credential to get that you really don't need just to yeah. get the expensive credential. But if you're going to be mentored, if you're going to, to work with people who, you know, you think you're actually going to learn some things, if you actually need the real skills of how to work through a P&L or how to do an audit, then that actually will really help you. And I think a lot of students will benefit from that. But don't just do it to go get the credential. So you've worked in the public sector, the, the private sector, and the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest misconception that people have about each? Uh, let me give you an overarching one. Yeah, let me sure. deep. Um, I would say that overall, everyone thinks that every one of these sectors is a ladder, right? Is that I start at the bottom, I work my way up, and then I have to restart or I have to go backwards to switch sectors. We are no longer in... Uh, what one of my mentors, Anne-Marie Slaughter, always calls uh, a chessboard world, yeah. right? Where everything's linear and everything's zero sum. We're in a networked world, yeah. right? Where power is networked, uh, relationships are networked, we're all networked, right? We're right. And by the way, influence. true power is having nonlinear power. That's exactly right. right, yeah. And so what's the difference between a chessboard and a networked world? In a chessboard world, power is like currency. You hoard it, right? In a networked world, it's like current, Right? You spread it, and you, and you can harness it in different ways. Right? And so in a networked world, that power means that you can actually benefit by going from one sector to the next. 
And yeah. so instead of a career ladder, what or I, multiple at the same time. There you go. We, exactly. we have all three at the same time. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Like, hey, this bookshop that you've got right here, which is so incredible because it's all about ideas, is part of the draw for me wanting to come in here and talk about my new book. Like I was telling you, like right. that's really powerful for me because I can imagine the fact that I'll be back here one day when this book rolls. We hope out. so. Yeah, I was going to invite you after the podcast to do an event, so you're invited now officially on the podcast to uh, when the book comes out. Come do a reading here. Let's fun. do it. We would do it. Yeah. But then, so here's the thing. It's no, longer, it's no longer about career ladders, right? It's about a career lattice, right? So you're trying to go up, yeah. but you might need to go over, and you might need to go diagonal. You might need to go diagonal down, for instance, if you're having a family, and you need to make sure that you have work that aligns with your yeah. values, but also your time. You can move down, and that's okay. Yeah. Or I, I give people, some, like you, I get asked for a lot of career advice. Um, Sometimes you have to take half a step back to reposition yourself for a bigger opportunity, right? It's like, for example, the first part of my career in government was in comms. And I, got, I was Chuck Schumer's communications director, so he's the most press-hungry person other than Donald Trump in, in all of politics, and I was running it, right? And so like, I was at the kind of peak of that. And then when Mike Bloomberg became mayor, I said, I really want a job in the administration. I don't want to work in the press office. And I understand that I'm not going to be as important as I was in Chuck's office, but I've sort of shifted to more operational and policy work, and then that enabled me to go be deputy governor of Illinois. So sometimes you have to take that half a step back to sort of change your resume a bit, where you're LinkedIn these days, um, so that people could then sort of see you in a different way. That's right, Brian. Yeah, and here's the other thing, too, that I tell my students, is that you never know how the relationships that you're investing in now will pay off later, both in ways that are career-oriented, but also in ways that are just personal, right? So like. Many of the people who I knew in D.C. are in amazing jobs, but we've also just had very deep, meaningful conversations about what it's like to have kids in the era of COVID, right? Yeah. Young kids in the era of COVID and how tough that was. And so that trust gets built over time. When they're 50, when they're 60, when they're whatever age, like, we're going to stay in touch, and that trust lasts. On Facebook. Well, hopefully not. But here's the thing, right? Yeah. Is that that trust is a real world thing. I call it the sort of compound interest theory of careers, right? Uh -huh. Is, that, is yeah. that your relationships compound over time? And that's more valuable than money. That social capital is more valuable than money when you're looking for new opportunities or when you're, and, when you're getting... And, and maybe just in terms of happiness and contentment, it's more valuable than there money. There you go. Right? Because right. there's a lot of miserable rich people and there's a lot of people who... Now, look, it is very easy for people like me who have a lot of money to be like, oh, money doesn't really matter. It's all about relationships and fulfillment and all that it's obviously all really important but but i definitely like for my business students try to sort of say like guys this is not it's not a linear thing where the goal is just to have the most amount of money at the end of the day if that's all you do you're not going to be that happy and maybe even arguably not that successful right because right. it's such a limited perspective on all of it one thing that i always find is people in the private sector do not have an appreciation for how talented people are usually at the top of the government sector, right? Now, there's incompetent bureaucrats and political hacks and all of that, mm -hmm. but by and large, you're running a police department, you're running a school system, you're running a mayor's office, whatever it is, you usually have to be pretty fucking smart and talented to do that. Um, and the private sector people kind of overval overestimate how hard their jobs are, not that hard sometimes, and then totally underestimate the amount of talent needed to be successful in government, and as a result, you know, people who work in government should be able to access better jobs than they often are because they're so typecast. And I feel like I always spend a lot of time trying to like, no, 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 this per trust me, this skill set, even if you don't see it, it's gonna be exactly look, when I started doing startups, you know what it was exactly like? Political campaigns. Right? And it turned out for me and then all the people I brought over over time, it wasn't that weird because once you sort of got some new lingo, it's like this is kind of the same thing. That's right. Well and look, I mean, if you think about 
first of all, one idea you said in there, it's really powerful, is that money ain't rich, right? Like, I mean, that's what my mom always used to tell me, money ain't rich. Now look, you need money to be able to at least have a baseline, but yeah. like, all these studies show that the, the more money you have, that you're not happier. You have you have a lot more problems that come with some of that too, right? And so, you know, I think that that's one thing that we all need to calibrate on is is what do you need? Where is enough? And what is the purpose of being on this planet? For gosh sakes, it's not just to accrue things that are then going to be gone. <laughs> you know, like that's not the point. Even the most successful business people will tell you that's not the point. Look at Warren Buffett, right? Warren Buffett gave it all away. He literally is one of America's greatest, the world's greatest capitalists, and he gave it all away, right? I mean, and then encouraged others to do the same, right? Talk about, like, what an amazing life to have lived. And yeah, meaningful. Meaningful, that's yeah. right. And so I think that that's the model that we look towards, not just how do I accrue, but then also, like, what's the point? What's right. the purpose? Right, like, sort of like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, both wealthier than Warren Buffett, I don't think they get the same kind of respect because... They are amazing business leaders who relentlessly focused on this one thing, and Elon created an interesting product or multiple products, and Bezos created a whole new industry in a way. But you don't really associate them with anything other than their own interests and their own publicity and their own you know, wallet. And as a result, I would imagine they're significantly less respected than someone like Warren Buffett. Right, and so one of Warren's quotes is, of course, that it takes 30 years to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it. Yeah. So. yeah. That, by the way, that's the best argument to stay off of social media. Right. The, 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 oops, the harm, the risk is so much greater than the reward. So the reward is some dopamine hit because someone liked your post or retweeted it or whatever they did. The risk is you screwed up just once, like Buffett said, and you could be dead forever. I mean, it comes full circle, I guess, yeah, right? I don't, I don't use it at all. Uh, and, and I feel like, you know, uh, I understand why younger people do or why people who maybe need to be able to have reach in other ways do, but 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 I don't. All right, last question, totally unrelated. So you're from Virginia. You lived in New Haven for a long time. You moved to New Orleans. I've always thought about living in New Orleans. It's my Other than New York, it's my favorite city. So the questions are, one, what's the adjustment like? And two, how did you not become an alcoholic? <laughs> so New Orleans is a wonderful city uh, that does enjoy drinking. I actually think D.C. and New York enjoy drinking yeah. just as much, if not more, in some ways. Like the happy hour culture in D.C. especially. Like you're drinking every day if you're, if you're buying into so like that. Yeah, Hill Staff or something mm -hmm. like that. For That's sure. right. Yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, to each their own. Um, New Orleans is one of the most magical places on the planet. Yeah. It really is. And there's a great, I think it's a Bob Dylan quote where he says, you know, uh, I, basically, I only get one life, and I want to spend as many of the days that I have there in New Orleans, right? Yeah. Like, it's it literally is one of the places where you know that you're just in a unique place. Um, it's the Tennessee Williams quote, right? right? Which is, there are three great American cities. This one, New York, yeah. San Francisco, and New Orleans. Everything else is Cleveland. That's what he says. Yeah. Right? And Los so, Angeles might have something to say about that, Miami. But, but no, I, so was it all kind of magic and rainbows when you got there, or were some of the things hard to adjust to? It's an incredibly hard city to live in. Um, and, what makes it hard? Uh, all sorts of issues. Uh, crime, the streets are horrible, trash doesn't get picked up, hurricanes, all of it. But there's a part of living there where we're all in that together, too. Yeah, know, th so. there's a spirit that seems to be pervasive throughout the city um, that is just magical in its own way, which I guess does overcome... It's not always, not always a well-run city. Mitch was a pretty good mayor, but overall, you know, generally speaking, they've had uh, a, a lot of problems. Um, and the drinking, like, I just find, and maybe it's because I only go to New Orleans for fun, <laughs> and actually I've quit drinking, so I guess it won't be an issue next time. I haven't been to New Orleans since COVID, but, like, 
that I just find that at every meal I'm just drinking so fucking much. It's because you're visiting. Yeah. It's just because you're visiting. We can't, right. we can't eat or we can't drink like that. I mean, I joke for, right. for visitors, the problem with New Orleans is that you can only eat four meals a day. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've exceeded that. <laughs> but I would say that, you know, we don't, we don't eat and drink like that when you live there. Uh, you couldn't. Like, you literally couldn't. You, you would, you know, you're taking years off your life. All right, so you give the listeners one recommendation New Orleans could be a restaurant, a store, a hotel. What did you find that you didn't know about that you think they should check out? So uh, I fell in love with New Orleans right after I moved there, right after Katrina to help with the rebuilding effort. And then I just kept going back, kept going back, kept going back. Um, I met my wife at a, at a bar in the French Quarter called Molly's at the Market. And so if you're ever in New Orleans, go to Molly's at the Market on Decatur and uh, get a frozen Irish coffee and, uh, and, raise, and raise it high. It's yeah, great. and you'll, you'll meet your future spouse too. Maybe you will. All right, Rob Locker, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. 